chapter 9. I always encourage you to either turn on your device, open up your Bible, and follow along with us. I think that's how you'll get the most out of these lessons. That's the way they're designed. So I invite you into Mark chapter 9. For a couple months, we have studied through the gospel of Mark, and today we're going to pump the brakes. We're going to finish Mark for a little while, and then we'll come back to Mark sometime in 2019. Now, as you're turning to Mark chapter 9, I actually want to start with a different scripture, and that will be on the PowerPoint. And the words I'm going to read come from 2 Peter, come from the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain, or the sacred mountain. These words from 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is remembering. He's thinking back to a time on a holy mountain, on a sacred mountain, and that mountain is the mountain of transfiguration. The story we're going to read from Mark chapter 9, and what took place on that mountain, as Peter says, I was an eyewitness, I heard this voice come from heaven, and we were on the summit of a mountain. Some of my favorite memories in my life have taken place while on the summit of a 14,000 foot plus mountain. How many of you have ever summited a mountain that's over 14,000 feet? All right, some of you have. Some of you are thinking, well, I've been to Quartz Mountains in Oklahoma. That doesn't count. I'm talking like Rocky Mountains. Some of my favorite memories in life have come from the summit of a mountain and also some of my worst memories. One of my favorite memories is this, the day I got engaged. Almost a decade ago, on the top of a 14,000-foot mountain, I got down on a knee and I asked Jessica to be my wife. And that looks like a pretty cool picture, right? That's a great engagement picture. Uh, The truth is, we were actually already engaged. We just didn't have any pictures of our engagement. (laughs) So we knew we were going on this church trip, so I thought, why don't we take pictures when we're on the summit and tell everybody that was our engagement. And if you look closely, I'm actually holding a rock that I found when I was on top of the summit. You know, I was like 22, 23, and that ring that I bought was really expensive. So I was thinking, three days hiking up a mountain, that expensive ring in my backpack, there's no way I'm going to risk damaging or losing that thing. So I just grabbed a rock when we were up there. But hey, good memories, right? That was a good time in life, uh, the beginning of what was going to become our marriage. But one of my worst memories also took place in the Rocky Mountains, on top of a 14,000-foot-plus mountain, and that was what happened this summer uh, when we went to Pikes Peak. I've actually already warned you about taking Pikes Peak Highway, but this summer, or late June, early July, we were in Colorado on our way home. We drove through Colorado Springs, and we decided, I thought it would be a good idea, to take Pikes Peak Highway, cheat, you don't have to hike, you can just drive up to the top. That sounds awesome. I like mountains. I thought it was going to be a good idea. I went through the checkpoint. I paid the $30 or whatever it was. And then I I asked several times when we were going through the checkpoints, this is safe, right? And everybody says, yeah, it's complete. People do it all the time. I mean, I mentioned already in, in a story back in July that driving up that mountain was the most dangerous and scariest thing I've ever done. 
The whole time I was driving up there, first, there was a lot of doubt in my mind. I was doubting the people that work on this mountain that told me it was safe. I was like, they have no clue what they're talking about. I doubted the other drivers, the people that were passing me, the people that were behind me, that were in front of me. I doubted my ability to drive because we're going up such a steep uh, incline that I had to constantly keep my foot on the gas. It was scary. You steer the wrong way, you're going off the side of the mountain. All right? I doubted everything. I doubted my ability as a parent to make wise decisions. And if you notice, this picture is my wife and my two children. They are in the picture and I am not. Because they walked over to the edge and they said, let's take a picture. And I said, I'm not getting close to the edge anymore. <laughs> so I took the picture, but I didn't want to be in it. I mean, people come from all over the world to go up Pikes Peak, and I didn't enjoy a second of it because I was so freaked out about the trip, and then I kept thinking I have to drive back down this thing. So I have one of my best memories on top of a mountain, and then I also have one of my worst memories. And that's what happens in Mark chapter 9. We have one of the greatest stories that three disciples could ever be a part of, but then we also have some of the lowest moments, some of the worst moments in Mark chapter 9 from the disciples. So I want to read, starting in Mark chapter 9, I'm actually going to start in verse 1. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. If you're reading from your text, you may notice the subtitles, the subheadings, and Mark chapter 9 verse 1 is under the subtitle of the previous teachings. You know, the end of Mark chapter 8, we did this sermon a few weeks ago. Jesus has his first passion prediction, and then this first paradoxical teaching following that. And here he says this kind of eerie statement, some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God come with power. And there are all sorts of interpretations on what Jesus means by that, but I'm here to tell you, and I'm not alone in this interpretation, I think what he means in verse 1 is almost immediately fulfilled. Because six days later, Jesus takes three of his disciples with him, they go up the mountain, and he is transfigured before them, and they see the power of the kingdom of God within a week. Look at verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Verse 3. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. So that verse we read from 2 Peter chapter 1, this is what Peter is referencing. Jesus takes them on a hike. They go and they summon a mountain. It's debatable which mountain it was. We're not sure how high the mountain is, but we know it's far enough away from society where they're alone. They're by themselves. He just takes Peter, James, and John. They summit this mountain, and when they get up there, Jesus is transfigured before him. His clothes are white. It's kind of like a, an early glimpse of maybe a resurrection body. And he's not alone. Up there with him are Moses and Elijah. He goes up this mountain, and the mountain is important in the Jewish Christian tradition. We know that Moses 
goes up a mountain to meet God and receive the Ten Commandments. We know Jesus takes his disciples up the mountain when he's transfigured. We know Jesus meets them on a mountain after he resurrects. The mountain is, it's an important, whatever mountain it may be, whether it's Mount Sinai or whatever this mountain is, the mountain is important in our church, our faith tradition. And while he's up there, Moses and Elijah are there. How they knew it was Moses and Elijah, we don't know. I had a Bible professor one time say that maybe they were wearing name tags. There was no pictures. They didn't know what Moses and Elijah looked like, but they knew it was Moses and Elijah. You know, there's numerous reasons why it could be Moses and Elijah, probably because Moses represents the law, the Torah. Uh, Elijah represents the prophets. But both Moses and Elijah are associated with ascensions up the mountain. Because we know that Moses receives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. We know that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has this powerful moment on Mount Carmel. And God comes through in powerful ways. So both Moses and Elijah have experience on the mountain. Peter's there, James and John. Peter's the one that always speaks up. And Peter says, hey, it's good for us to be here. He's in the moment. Peter's having, both literally and metaphorically, he's having a mountaintop experience. And he says, let's just stay here. He wants to set up tents. He wants to prolong the moment. And I like in verse 6 that Mark kind of gives him an out. He didn't know what he was saying. They're all terrified. He didn't know what to say, but he felt like he had to say something. So Peter wants to prolong the moment. He wants to stay on the mountain. And even though Peter's having this mountaintop experience, it doesn't prevent him from denying Jesus later on. During the crucifixion, Peter still denies Jesus three times. And even though he's had this incredible experience, apparently it's not enough for him. But what Peter wants to do is just stay on the mountain. There's many of you who have probably walked this road for a long time. And if you're like me, you've probably enjoyed some mountaintop experiences. And I don't just mean in the Rocky Mountains, like church camps or mission trips or or trips that you go on with your church. There are times where you're taken out of your normal environment and you had this great encounter with God and with church people and and you're feeling the spiritual high and, and those are great moments. We've all probably had some mountaintop experiences. John Ortberg wrote a book called No Doubt. The original title was Faith and Doubt, and then he changed the title later to No Doubt, K-N-O-W. And in this book, he's referencing Mark chapter 9, and you'll see why in just a moment, but he writes this. Maybe if I spend too much time on the mountain, I'll be in danger of worshiping the mountain where I met God instead of worshiping God. I'll just want the experience, the feeling, the high. So that's always a danger in our faith walk is that we have these experiences and we're just chasing them because we feel like that's where we meet God are the mountaintop experiences. Peter just wants to park it. He just wants to stay there, set up tents and just stay on the mountain, prolong the moment. But the moment is pointing to God, to worshiping God, not worshiping the experience, not worshiping the mountain. So Peter speaks up. They just completely ignore him. The cloud comes and just wraps him up in God's love. The voice from heaven is the same voice that Jesus' baptism, the same words. The cloud is lifted, and it seems like everything is back to normal. And then in verse 9, we have this half a sentence where Mark just says, 
as they were coming down the mountain. So they don't get to stay there. Peter doesn't get his wish. They have to come back down the mountain. Right? And that can be a sad thing once you have an experience like that. You don't want to come back down. I took this picture. I don't know how well you can see it, but as we were driving down Pikes Peak this summer, and you know the, wor- the road is miles long and it twists and turns, and you can see the peak of the mountain as you drive up it and as you drive down. So obviously all my fear and anxiety that I had going up the mountain was gone because I'm taking pictures as I'm driving. But I took this picture and you could see Pikes Peak off in the distance. And I slowed down and I was looking at it and I thought, man, we drove all this way. We had this amazing experience on top of this huge mountain and I didn't savor the moment. And it's over and it's gone and there's a part of me that thinks maybe I need to go back someday. But those mountaintop experiences, they come and they're gone just like that. So Peter wants to savor the moment. The disciples, they don't really know what else to say. But now it's time to come back down the mountain and go back to reality. They have a conversation with Jesus coming down. He has another little word about the resurrection. They don't fully understand what he's talking about. And then when they come back down, maybe you could call it the valley. They're off the top of the mountain. They're back into reality, back into real life. There's a crowd. The other nine disciples are down there. They're having an argument with the religious leaders. And then this crowd in verse 14 and 15, they run to Jesus. You remember uh, from the Exodus story when Moses comes down the mountain? He's radiant. He's glowing because he's been in the presence of God. And and we kind of get a similar image here. The crowd flocks to Jesus. But he sees his other disciples arguing, and then in verse 16, he asks them, what are you arguing about? So here we are, we're back to reality. Some dad in the crowd is going to speak up. Let's pay attention to the dad's words in verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And pay attention to this at the end of verse 18, because this is important to understanding the dad's situation. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. You faithless generation, similar to the words of Moses to the Israelites, you faithless generation... Jesus has been on top of the mountain, and now he's back down, and all he knows is what's going on down here in the valley, it's not faith. You faithless generation, we don't know if that's directed towards the disciples, towards the religious leaders, I don't think it's directed towards the dad, and we'll find out why, but he calls them a faithless generation, he says, bring the boy to me. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So this is a pretty strong, unclean spirit. It's taken over him. It's trying to harm him. When it comes into the presence of Jesus, he's foaming at the mouth. You know, it's pretty powerful. Even the disciples who have already cast out demons could not cast out this one. Verse 21, Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Look at the dad's words. If you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Or in some of your translations, the dad says, if you can. If you can help us. 
If you remember at the, towards the end of Mark chapter 1, there's a leper who comes up to Jesus and he wants to be healed and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds to the leper's words and he says, I am willing. Here this dad says, if you can, if you're able. And then in verse 23, Jesus repeats his words. If you are able. I'm not sure about the inflection in Jesus' voice here, but if you are able, it's like he's questioning the dad, or at least he's reciting the words back to him. And then he says these words about faith. All things can be done for the one who believes. So the dad comes to Jesus and he says, if you're able, Jesus repeats that back to him. And I'll point out that if is not a mountaintop word. When you're having a mountaintop experience, you don't think in if. You think in yes. You think anything can be done. Anything is possible when you're on top of a mountain, especially when you're experiencing God. But in reality, in real life, this word if comes to mind. This dad has an iffy faith. If you can, if you're able, and that may describe some of you today. Maybe that's where your faith is. Maybe you have an iffy faith where you believe, but then you also struggle with some doubt. So Jesus responds and says, it's possible for anyone who believes. Not sure exactly what he means by that, but anything's possible for those who believe. And in verse 24, after Jesus responds to this dad, the dad responds back, and it's like the words just vomit out of his mouth. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. It's like it's just a mixture of faith and doubt. We just get this dad's raw and honest response. I do believe, I do have some faith, but I also have some doubt. He just cries out. This is known as the doubter's prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I have tried over the last several months to offer you from Scripture, different prayers that maybe you can pray and work into your regular routine, like the Lord's Prayer or Luke 18, uh, the Jesus Prayer, also known as the Breath Prayer. Uh, Clint prayed this morning from the book of Psalms. There's different prayers that we can pray from Scripture. And it might be helpful to pray this prayer, the Dad's Prayer, the Doubter's Prayer. I believe, but there's still a little doubt. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. What's he doubting? What does the dad doubt here? Obviously, he's a man of faith because wherever he's from, whatever he believes, he travels in front of this crowd to find Jesus, and he believes that Jesus and his disciples can do something about his son. Maybe some of the doubt, some of the unbelief that he struggled with is, is the question, why? His son is suffering a great deal, so maybe he's questioning God and he's asking, why is this happening to my son? And suffering and evil can bring doubt. All right, that can happen. But what the first biggest problem, biggest area of unbelief or doubt I think this dad is struggling with is his disappointment that he's had with the disciples. Remember verse 18. He said, I brought my boy to your disciples and they couldn't do anything about it. He's had some disappointment with those who claim to follow Jesus. And for some of you, that could be a problem that you've had, or maybe you have family members with that problem. Maybe some of the doubt or some of the frustration with faith is less about your doubt in God and more about maybe some 
negative experiences you've had in church or with other people who claim Christ. You remember Gandhi is famously quoted for saying, I like your Christ, just not your Christians. Because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And we could probably say that's true. We're a room full of hypocrites, and, and occasionally we've wronged or hurt people or handled situations, or, or maybe we've been a bad example. And if we're not careful, that can be a deterrent to the faith of others, like we talked about last week from the city of Nazareth from Mark chapter 6. That can happen. Barna Research and other groups have done research that show that one of the biggest barriers for those who don't believe in Christ is the hypocrisy of other Christians. And so here are the disciples in Mark chapter 9. They can't do anything to help this dad. Maybe they've made some bold claims and they can't follow through with those bold claims. And I think part of his unbelief, part of his doubt is fueled by his experience with other followers. That can cause doubt. But that can also be an excuse. I know a lot of people who use past experiences with church or with other Christians as an excuse to just stay away, as an excuse no longer to go to church. A few years ago, I was having a conversation with a well-respected man in town, and he asked me what I do for a living, so I told him I'm a preacher. And usually, if I tell people I'm a preacher, the conversation changes tone. Either people want to know more about the Church of Christ or they're interested in this because they're faithful Christians, or if they find out I'm a Christian, they either want to argue or they just stop the conversation. This guy wanted to argue. So he immediately responded. He said, I go to church. And I said, where do you go to church? And he said, I go out in the lake with my boat and a fishing rod. That's where I go to church. What do you think about that? So he's wanting a fight. He's wanting an argument. I didn't really want to give it to him, but all I could think to to say to this guy, I was thinking about the mountaintop experience, and he's had some experiences with his hobbies, with fishing, and so he thinks, that's where I experience God. I'll just keep going back to my mountaintop experience. But what I said to him was, isn't that the easy way out? You can go out by yourself, and yeah, maybe you experience God in nature and through your hobby, but to disassociate yourself with other followers, with other believers, that's just taking the easy way out. Love causes some vulnerability. This dad was vulnerable. He placed himself and his child before other followers, and he was disappointed. But one of the things that I admire about this dad in Mark chapter 9 is he doesn't give up. He sticks around. He keeps looking for Jesus. He keeps wanting to place his son in the presence of Jesus. He doesn't say, forget this, I'm going to go find some witch doctor. No, he stays the course, and he keeps searching for Jesus. He keeps wrestling even though there's faith, and there's doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. And I know there's probably some of you with an iffy faith, or some of you that in the past you've had those mountaintop experiences, but it was a long time ago, and some of you are really wrestling in the depths of doubt right now. Uh, Some of you may be visiting for the holidays. Maybe you came because your parents wanted you to come and you knew you would make your family happy, but what you haven't told them is you're not sure what you believe anymore. My word of encouragement to you if you're struggling with doubt would be to keep wrestling, keep praying, don't give up, don't just walk away. Be like the dad who keeps pressing forward to find truth, to find Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 25 and 27, 
25 through 27. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, That spirit, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, hearing has been very important. Jesus has said repeatedly, He who has ears, let him hear. He said to the disciples, your hearts are hardened, you have eyes but you fail to see, you have ears but you fail to hear. And this unclean spirit is preventing this boy from not only speaking but from hearing. So Jesus rebukes it, he says, leave him and never come back again. In verse 26, after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. So there's people in the crowd who are looking at this boy. He's laying lifeless on the ground, and they're thinking, he's dead. Maybe they're thinking, Jesus failed, just like the disciples. He couldn't heal this boy. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he was able to stand. As we read this from our English text, we may not catch what's going on in the Greek. If you're reading an ESV, it says, he arose. It's the same language that's used the resurrection of Jesus. This is a proleptic account of what is coming. The conversation that Jesus has with his disciples as they make their way down the mountain is about the resurrection. He's already predicted his suffering and they don't understand that. And what he's starting to predict is that three days later he's coming back. The resurrection will take place and someday they will fully understand. So this boy is a glimpse of what the resurrection will be like. I was with a group of other ministers a few weeks ago, and they invited this lady to come speak, and uh, she had dealt with a horrible tragedy in her life, so she was talking to us about what ministers, she's a licensed counselor, and she's teaching us what we need to know about grief and walking with people who have gone through grief. And she shared her own experience of losing an adult child. Her, her daughter was in her early 30s, they had, she had kids, she's in the hospital room, she's praying, and her daughter dies. She said that she knew she was going to be wrestling with a lifetime of doubt and frustration and struggle, and she said to her husband before they left the, left the hospital room, remind me again of what we believe. And she said her husband said, the tomb was empty. That's what we believe. We don't understand this. We don't understand why we're suffering. We don't have answers for everything. But we put our ultimate hope that the tomb was found empty. And in the midst of all this suffering and all this faith and doubt and the mountaintop experience and the valley experience, Jesus gives them a glimpse of what resurrection is going to look like. And we see that at the end of Mark. So after this scene is over, privately he's in the house with his disciples. and They want to know, why could we not cast it out? What were we doing wrong? And then Jesus responds, this kind can only come out through prayer. We're not sure exactly what he means by that. There has been a a lot of conversation about maybe what he means. We don't see a prayer that Jesus steps away and says a certain type of prayer, then casts it out. But what we do see throughout the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' whole life is wrapped up in prayer. This was our very first challenge to you when we started, Mark, was to spend 15 minutes of alone time with God each day. Jesus would wake up early in the morning. Jesus would separate himself. He would send his disciples out on their own on a boat, and he would go off by himself to pray. His life was characterized in prayer, 
And we're not sure exactly what he means by this, but we know that Jesus was able to do what he was doing because of his life connected with the Father. And I'm not sure where you're at this morning. If you're struggling with doubt, if your faith is high, I'm not sure what your life is like, but I would encourage you with that last little word from Jesus is to keep praying, to keep pressing forward. Uh, This morning, we're going to sing a few more songs. We're going to have some shepherds around the room. I'll be up front. One of our shepherds will be up front with me. If you need to respond, if you need prayers, if you're interested in becoming a follower of Jesus, take this time to respond. I want to invite everybody to stand back up. Just as I am.